Every Sunday, I encourage you to fill out one of our response cards, and every Sunday at the end of the message, as I will do at the end of this message, I encourage you to write down any prayer requests you have on the response cards and to let us know if, um, if this is something that we should pray about as a church family, as many people um, in our church who have joined our prayer team, or if it's something that the elders and I should pray about. And so every week, we have a new list of prayer requests from people. And as we read those requests every week, as we pray about them individually, and then every month when the elders and I gather and we pray about these uh, prayer requests together, we get some insight into some of the things that people are dealing with, that some of the things that you are dealing with in your lives. Sometimes people who are brand new to our church will tell us about some of the struggles that they're dealing with in their life. Sometimes it's the pain of a personal loss, the death of a family member or a friend or a loved one. Or sometimes it's a relationship struggle, issues that they're having with someone in their family and asking God's help with that struggle. Sometimes and often it's a health problem. It's a health crisis that someone is dealing with or just a chronic problem that is a nagging issue that they are asking prayer for. Sometimes they want us to pray, but they don't feel comfortable telling us exactly what's going on, and so they'll give what's called an unspoken prayer request. And so week after week, the elders of this church and I and some of the prayer team people, we get an insight into some of the issues that are going on in the life of our church family or in people who have found our church one way or another. And we see that there are very, some very common struggles that people have. And there are some very personal struggles that people have. There are some very painful moments in your lives. And there are a lot of problems and issues that people want prayer for, they want help with, they want guidance for. This, of course, isn't restricted only to Christians, to churchgoers. If you think about people you know in your community who maybe don't have a church family, you don't know the Lord, I know that you will agree that they have struggles as well, that they have some of the same types of issues that the rest of us deal with, the rest of people struggle with. And you know that People will talk about their struggles. They will complain in some ways to others. That's what complaints are. They're somebody verbalizing a struggle that they have. And sometimes it's annoying to listen to the complaints of others. But sometimes if we have some insight, if we have some, uh, some grace and some heart into listening to what people are saying, we can hear and the things that they're complaining about, a, 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 a deep-rooted difficulty that they're struggling with in their lives. Struggles are part of the human condition. This is not an, a deep insight that you never knew about and that never occurred to you before. This is part of life. Struggles are common in everyday human life. And everyone who has ever lived has dealt with some kind of struggle in their life. Not all of us have had the same types of struggles. Not everyone has had the same intensity of struggles. Not everyone has had the same number of struggles. Struggles vary from person to person. But everyone who lives is going to struggle with some things in life, at some times in life, because struggles are common to human life. In our passage for this morning, as we've been walking through the gospel according to Luke, and we've been coming now to the end of Jesus' life as recorded by Luke, the author of this, this uh, book. We come to one of the most difficult moments in the life of Jesus, one of the darkest moments in the life of Jesus. Christ has spent the week that we call the Passion Week in Jerusalem, and he had arrived on what's called Palm Sunday with great fanfare, with great welcome, People praising him, saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. And yet right after that fanfare, Jesus goes to the temple and he begins cleansing the temple of people who 
were using the worship of God to profit for themselves. And he begins teaching day after day after day. Although he was welcomed and heralded as a king, Jesus does not go to the capital. He does not go to the halls of power and try to overthrow the Roman government or the Jewish government that was set up by the Romans. No, he goes to the temple and he begins teaching the people of God. And the Bible says that day after day on the Passion Week, people arrived early in the morning. They showed up early in the morning to hear Jesus teach. And they listened to him teach all day long until the sun would go down at night. Then they would go home and arrive early the next day to hear him speak again. And in the preceding passage, Jesus gathered for the Passover meal, one of the most central and most important Jewish holy days in the times in which Jesus lived. Jesus and his disciples have gathered together for what we call the Last Supper, but to the disciples and to everyone else in Jerusalem, it was just the Passover observation for that year. And Jesus and his disciples have gathered in somebody else's home. We don't know who this person is. He just made available a large guest room upstairs that we call the upper room to the disciples. And the disciples went through the the, the rituals and ceremonies associated with the Passover feast. And Jesus took two of the elements of the Passover feast. The wine that was observed in several cups during the Passover meal and the unleavened bread. And he said, this is my body about the unleavened bread. Just as leaven in the Old Testament illustrated sin, Jesus used this unleavened bread to refer to his sinless self, his sinless sinless life, and said, this body, just like I'm breaking this, this bread in half or in pieces to give to you, so my life is going to be broken. My body is going to be broken for you. And just as they drank the wine from the cup, he says, this wine is like the new covenant in my blood. And by doing this, he foretold for them again, as he had previous, that he was going to be killed, but that his death was not an accident or a failure of mission. It was exactly what God had for him, and it was important and essential to the salvation and the kingdom that he offered. And in the midst of observing this Passover meal... Jesus has told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples began arguing about which one it would, and that argument transmuted into an argument about which one of them was the greatest of all. And Jesus began to rebuke the disciples and say, don't think about who is the greatest among you in terms of leadership. Think about who the greatest servant among you is. And again, he referred to himself and says, I am one who has come to serve. And then Simon Peter, the bold leader of the apostles, said he would never betray Jesus. He's ready to go to prison and to death for Jesus. And Jesus says to him, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning and the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he tells the disciples that they are going to find out what it's like to be separated from him and to have to live on their own. And it was going to be a difficult, harrowing experience for them. But all of this teaching, all of this information just passed right over them. They didn't realize the significance of what Christ was saying. And so now as we come to Luke chapter 22 this morning, Jesus is about to enter one of the most difficult struggles of his life, the most difficult struggle of his life. And the disciples, too, are going to face some struggles in the same place, in the same context as the Lord himself is going to experience. And so the disciples leave that upper room, that guest room above the house, and they exit the city of Jerusalem, and they cross the Kidron Valley. They begin to climb. It's, It's not really a mountain, but it's a hill. They begin to go ascend the hill that's called the Mount of Olives. The Bible tells us that Jesus entered a garden called Gethsemane. It's not recorded here in Luke, but it is in the other Gospels. It was a place where Jesus came with his disciples frequently. And that's somewhat indicated in our passage in verse 39, where the scripture says, Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And so we see that 
During Jesus' time here in Jerusalem during this week, this has been his custom. He would teach all day in the temple, as Luke has already told us. And at night, he and the disciples would retire to the Mount of Olives, and they would go to this garden called Gethsemane, where they could finally have some time alone together. And so our passage opens with Jesus and his disciples making this procession from the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And at the end of verse 39, it says, and his disciples followed him. Then in verse 40, Jesus has some more instructions for the disciples. It says in verse 40, it says, on reaching the place. And by calling it the place, Luke is again indicating to us that this was a common place for Jesus and the disciples to visit, that this was their routine, their habit for this week that we call the Passion Week. And again, from other passages of Scripture, we know that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. But verse 40 says, On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now remember, Jesus has just told the disciples that they are going, that he's going to, he's just told Peter that they would, that he would deny Jesus three times. And we know from other records of this same incident that he told all the disciples, you will all fall away on account of me. And Jesus has told the disciples, you had better prepare for life on your own. Because in turning away from me, you're going to be left to your own resources. Now in verse 40, when Jesus says, On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not enter temptation. We find Christ's prescription for the common struggles of life. Everyone who lives the human life faces struggles. Some of them are small. Some of them are huge. Some of them pass quickly and some of us some of them tie us up for years. But all of us face struggles in life. And as Jesus entered the most difficult struggle of his life, the most epic struggle that any man has ever faced, he gave to his disciples a prescription and he followed the prescription for himself. And that prescription is given to us first in verse 40 when it says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. What did Jesus have to say about the struggles of life? Jesus prescribed prayer for the struggles of human life. How should people handle the discouragements and disappointments of life? How should they handle their grief or their burning of temptation? Jesus said, pray. As he has warned the disciples of what is about to happen to them, he urges them now to pray in order to avoid falling into the temptation that they are going to experience. And in verse 40, he tells the disciples to pray about their struggles. In verse 40, again, it says, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, the temptation that Jesus is referring to here is the one that he had warned them about in the preceding section. Namely, the temptation for Simon Peter to deny Jesus three times and for the rest of the disciples to forsake Jesus and flee from him and not want to have anything to do with him. This was a temptation. This was a challenge to their faith. Would they stand with Jesus Christ as they had before, as he admittedly said earlier in one of the passages we looked at. He said, you've stood with me in my struggles. The question is, when things get really serious, and when Christ's freedom and life is on the line, will the disciples continue to follow him? Will they continue to identify with him? Will they continue to stand with him? Or will they give in to the weakness of human nature? Will they lose the struggle to stand with Christ and instead turn away from and even disclaim knowing the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the temptation Jesus has in mind when he says in verse 40, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, the way this is phrased sounds 
it could sound like Jesus is saying, pray in order to avoid going into temptation. In other words, pray so that you will not encounter the temptation itself. And maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. As I've taught before, but I think it's helpful to review, you can think of temptation in two ways. One is the external temptation, the opportunity itself, the choice to sin or not sin. And the other is the internal desire for temptation. In other words, as we live in this world, we are given opportunities to do things that we know are wrong. We are given opportunities to tell lies, even though we know they are wrong. We get into a situation where it seems easier to lie than to tell the truth, and so that gives us an external opportunity to sin. But we also know that temptation happens in the internal. That is, we have either an internal desire or an inkling to sin, or we don't. And not everyone has the same internal types of temptation. There are some things, some sins that you may be drawn to that other believers might not be drawn to, and vice versa. And the everyday illustration that I give for this is to tell you that I don't like berries of any kind. In fact, most fruit. Some of it I can take it or leave it, but especially if it's a berry or rhymes with berry, like cherry. I don't want anything to do with that, okay? <laughs> and so if I attend um, you know, a dinner, a picnic or whatever, and somebody offers me cherry pie, okay, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to sin by going off my diet and eating something that I shouldn't eat, okay? But internally, there's no temptation. It's like very easy for me to say no. Chocolate cake, on the other hand, chocolate pie, French silk pie, that's a different story, okay? (laughs) Offer me that on the outside, the internal man says yes, okay? So it is in sinful situations. We encounter sinful situations where we're given the opportunity to break God's laws, to go against God's word, and sometimes inside we say, no, I want nothing to do with that, and other times we say, Man, it sure would be nice to indulge in that sin. These are the two forms of temptation, external and internal. Now, Jesus might be saying, pray that you won't enter into temptation internally. They're going to face the opportunity to deny Jesus. That's that's unavoidable, and they don't even know it's coming. They're going to face the external opportunity to reject Jesus. Jesus might be saying, pray so that you won't enter into it internally. That is, so that you will be able to resist it or not even have the desire. That might be what he is saying. But I think what Jesus is saying is, pray that you won't enter into the temptation in the, te- in the sense of giving into the temptation. Because let's face it, anytime your security is on the line, anytime you have an opportunity to be arrested or not, there's going to be a strong level of fear that says, I'm going to take the opportunity to not get arrested. And so I think it's hard to imagine a situation where the disciples don't at least feel some desire to not be arrested along with Jesus. And so what I think Jesus is saying in verse 40 when he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation, he's saying literally fall into it in the sense of give into it. And his prescription for not falling into temptation is to pray. It's to ask God for the power and the grace to resist the external temptation and even the internal draw to that temptation. And instead, to have the grace to say no to the temptation, no matter how good it looks on the outside and how much on the inside they may feel like giving into it. Christ's prescription for the power of temptation was to pray that they would not fall into it. And again, this is a grave situation that both Christ and the disciples are facing. None of us has faced a situation like this ever in our lives where someone said, deny Jesus or get arrested. I don't think that we've ever faced that. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world in the persecuted church have, but we haven't to this point in our lives. And yet, this is not the only time Jesus prescribes prayer for the power of temptation. Throughout the writings or the teachings of Jesus that have been recorded for us in the gospel writings, we have seen again and again and again that Jesus taught his disciples that prayer is the way to handle 
situations like this, all of the struggles in life, as it turns out. In his guide to prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, what did he say? Lead us not into temptation. One of the things Jesus said we should be praying for on a regular basis in his guide to prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer is that God in his sovereignty would not lead us into temptation, but following that is, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, when we fall into the external temptation, give us the power to resist it. And in other contexts, Jesus said, Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest. Christ has urged and taught his disciples again and again that whatever struggle you're facing in life, prayer is God's prescription for it. And that's what he tells the disciples here. He tells the disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And So Christ taught the disciples to pray about their struggles. Now in verses 41 through 44, Christ is going to put his own advice into action. He's going to do what he tells us to do, what he tells disciples to do. He's going to, to use a modern image. He's going to, as they sometimes say, eat his own dog food, okay? In other words, he's going to do what he says others should do. He's going to take his own advice. He's going to swallow his own prescription. Verse 41 tells us, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. In other words, We are to understand that Jesus seeks separation from his disciples. And other accounts of this tell us that he took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him, but then he even withdrew further from them. So Christ is several yards away from all of the disciples and a little closer to the others, but he's found a moment of of, of separation, a moment of, of privacy here. And verse 41 continues, and then verse 40, uh, it says in verse 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. See, Christ was dealing in his own life, in his own heart, with what God had planned for him next. And we've seen throughout these days of Jesus' time in Jerusalem during this Passion Week, that he knew what was coming again and again and again, We see that Jesus tells just in very common things what's going to happen next, and it happens. And so Christ is very dialed into what God has willed for him and what is about to happen. And he knows that Judas, when he left the upper room, has gone to gather the soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. He knows what's coming. He's known it from eternity past. When God in three persons willed that God the Son would give his life for humanity. Jesus knew that that hour was about to arrive. So he's dealing with the internal struggle of what it's going to mean to give his life for us. And in verse 42, we are told in summary form what his prayer to God was, where it says, Father, If you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And in these words, the prayers of Jesus, we are given insight into what is about to happen to Christ and the internal anguish, the Bible will use the word, that Jesus had, the internal struggle that he himself had with what was about to take place and what needed, he needed to accomplish in the will of God. And notice that Christ here is struggling with God's will in a very real sense. He, is, he wants and he asks to be relieved from doing the will of God. That's a shocking way to put it, but that's exactly what's going on here. Christ knows what God's will is, and he's been leading up to this moment again and again throughout the, Luke, throughout the Gospel of Luke He has made allusions to the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem and to die as a substitute for sinners. He just talked about it when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and I give this, this this bread represents my body given for you. He knows what's coming. And yet in his prayers to God, he's struggling deeply with this. And so he says, God, if you are willing, change your will, Lord. Change your will from me dying 
as a sacrifice for these people, if you are willing to do that. Now, notice in verse 42 the way Jesus phrases this. It says in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And in referring to his death as the cup, he has made a, he's used a figure of speech to describe what's coming next. And it's not altogether clear from the immediate context what exactly the cup means. Does it mean death itself? Is Jesus asking to be delivered, like to ascend into heaven and to avoid the entirety of his crucifixion? Or is there something deeper than that? I think it's much deeper than just the physical pain of death that Jesus is trying to avoid here. In the Old, in the Old Testament, the cup of God is a reference to God's wrath poured out on the human race, and not just in the Old Testament. It's a, an image that recurs later on in the New Testament as well. And I think Jesus is drawing on that image to speak to God about the thing that he is very reluctant to enter into, to ask God to change his will about something very specific and to show us exactly what it is that Jesus recoiled from. Yes, as a man, he did not want to endure the agony that his torture and crucifixion would bring upon his physical body, but that really wasn't the thing that bothered Christ the most. What bothered Christ the most was that in dying on the cross for our sins, he would be receiving the wrath of God for our sins. That's what we mean when we say Christ died for our sins. We mean that he died in my place, on my behalf, taking the wrath of God upon himself. And this would mean that Christ, the sinless Son of God, yes, he was fully human, but he was also fully God. And he lived this, his entire life on this earth without sinning against God even one time in thought or word or action. And yet, in order to fulfill the will of God for us, he was going to receive all of God's wrath for all of the sins of humanity that God had planned to redeem. For Jesus to die on the cross, it was not the physical pain of death that caused him struggles and anguish. It was being accursed from God the Father and receiving the punishment for human sins upon himself, the sinless one. This is what Jesus is praying for. This is his struggle. His struggle is with the desire to do the will of God and accomplish human salvation on one hand, and yet to avoid receiving the wrath of God in his body and avoid the separation that would come when he died in our place on the cross. That's the struggle that Jesus was entertaining. That's what was going on in his mind and his heart in verse 42. And his request was a direct ask of God to change his will, but only if he was willing. A very submissive and yet very direct request. Father, if there is any other way for you to be pleased and to redeem those that we have chosen without me going through the anguish of being separated from you, without me having to drink the cup of your wrath, without having to die on behalf of sinners. If there's any other way to save humanity, let's go with plan B. Okay, That's what he's asking God the Father. And yet in his heart he knows that there is no other way. Which is why he closes verse 42 by saying, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ is struggling internally with the desire to avoid the cross and yet also to please God and be obedient to what God has commanded to do. In verses 43 through 44, we see that he received a gracious answer to his prayer. 
but not the answer he wanted. Look at verse 43 where the scripture says, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Did God answer Jesus' requests? Well, yes and no. He didn't answer the part where Jesus requested that God change his will. He was not, God was not pleased to relieve Jesus from the responsibility to die as a sacrifice for sinners, to stand in our place and receive the wrath of God and himself. God was not pleased to answer that request specifically. And yet God did not refuse to answer completely. Instead, God sent the strength that he needed to do what God had willed and to accomplish the mission that God gave him. And so verse 43 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And yet the anguish of Christ is not over. As God strengthens Christ for what is about to happen, prepares him for the cross, but it doesn't relieve the struggle that Jesus has within. Verse 44 says, and being in anguish. This is a word that describes the most deep kind of mourning that a person can experience. The emotional depth of loss that happens when someone loses someone they love deeply or wants something deeply and cannot receive it. Jesus, the Bible says in verse 44, was in anguish, but yet he didn't give up. Verse 44 says he prayed more earnestly. Having received the angel, Jesus got the answer that God had for him, that he was not going to relieve him of the responsibility to go to the cross. And yet Jesus doesn't just throw up his hands and say, well, I'm resigned. There's no use. No, it says he prays even more, despite how deeply in anguish he was. And his anguish had physical manifestations to it. Verse 44 says his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And I need to stop and correct a common misunderstanding of this passage. It doesn't say that Jesus sweat blood. Okay? It says that his sweat was like blood. And the point of the image here is like a gaping wound that pours blood out of it. So that's how profusely Jesus was sweating. That's how deep his anguish was, that his sweat poured from his body like blood pours from a fresh wound. Do you think it was easy for Christ to do the will of God? Do you think it was easy for him to stand before the religious leaders who hated him, to be beaten and mocked? to be whipped and crucified? Do you think it was easy for him to stand before Pontius Pilate who asked him, are you the king of the Jews? It wasn't easy for him at all. It was the most difficult thing that any human being has ever encountered because all of it led to a separation from fellowship and the love of God. And so Jesus had this deep struggle within himself. And how did he handle it? He prayed. He prayed for God to change his will, and if not, for the grace to do the will of God, despite how painful it would be, despite how tormentous it would be to his own, um, his own internal thinking and feeling. This is how Christ responded to his struggles in life. He prayed for himself in his struggles. Then in verse 45, Jesus takes a break from praying to check on the disciples, and what he finds is not encouraging. Verse 45 says, When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Now remember, the disciples have had a very busy week here. They've spent all day long from sunup to sundown with Jesus in the temple as he taught and doing whatever Christ needed during those times. And then they had to prepare the Passover meal. And during all of this, Jesus has told them again and again that he is about to be portrayed and he's going to be given over to 
the human authorities who would kill and crucify him. And he told the disciples that they would, that Peter would deny him and the rest of them would forsake him. And so the disciples are having a hard time computing all of this. How can he be received as a king a few days ago beforehand as he enters Jerusalem? And how could throngs of people come to hear him teach in the temple every day, and yet somehow he's going to be betrayed by somebody, and he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be put to death? None of this computes to the disciples. And yet the reality of it has started to sink in. They've never seen Jesus in anguish like this before. They've never seen him sweating like this before. Christ has been in some tough situations before, and God had delivered him from death at other times in his life where people were going to stone him or push him off a cliff. So they've seen Jesus in some tough situations. They've never seen him sweat like this. And so the the reality of this is starting to sink in upon them. But instead of doing what Christ asked them to do, instead of praying for him and for themselves to have the power to overcome the struggle of temptation. The disciples give way to their exhaustion. They've fallen on their faces to pray, but instead of praying, they've fallen asleep. And Jesus in verse 46 confronts them and says, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What did Jesus do? He encouraged the disciples again to pray even when they failed at it. See, Christ even into his last moments, is so gracious to the disciples. What he says here sounds like a rebuke, and it is. But notice that Jesus doesn't say, you guys are worthless. Can't you just do anything right? He doesn't speak in an exasperated way about them. Instead, he encourages them to do right again. And you've been here, you've, you've, you've encountered this in your life where maybe with your children or with students or maybe when you were a child, you've been told to do something and you failed to do it or you're told your children to do something and they failed to do it and you just say, I give up. You just speak with total exasperation. Or maybe you have the patience and the grace to say, you failed me this time, you haven't done what you've been told to, but here's another chance to do what's right. Jesus, at the very end and to the very last moment, encourages the disciples to deal with their struggles, to deal with the difficult temptation that they're about to encounter by praying, by preparing themselves spiritually for what is about to happen. And so all of this, again, is designed to show us how very important prayer is in the life of every Christian. Christ himself turned to prayer at the most difficult anguished moments of his life, when he encountered the worst set of circumstances that any human being will ever encounter, Jesus prayed. And he encouraged his disciples to pray. And so the answer for us, the meaning for, the, for us, the, the takeaway from this passage, the big idea is this, come to God in prayer in all the struggles of your life. This is a dire situation, but it's Christ's prescription for it is the same as it is for every struggle that he and the disciples have ever encountered in life. It's to look for God, to look to God in prayer for the grace and the strength and the will of God in every struggle of life. So this is what Christ did. He encouraged the disciples to pray and he practiced prayer in his own life in every struggle that they faced. How do we put this into practice in our own lives? How do we learn to pray in the struggles and temptations of life? Let me give you some practical ways to work this into your own life. The first one I would encourage you to do is to build a prayer habit now as part of your walk with Christ. To build a prayer habit now as part of your walk with Christ. This is not the first time that Jesus taught the disciples to pray. In fact, as I've mentioned to you, he has counseled prayer to them again and again and again throughout his ministry on earth with them. Their failure to pray in this moment is definitely a a revelation of their human weaknesses as men, but it also indicates the fact that they haven't made prayer the kind of habit that Christ himself modeled and the kind that he taught. It was 
common for Jesus to enter into prayer in the struggles and in, in all the moments of his life, and we'll come to that in a, in a moment. But the point that I want to get to this here is that when you and I face the difficult struggles of life, the most difficult struggles of our lives, the ones where our faith is on the line, is prayer going to be instinctual for us, or is it going to be the furthest thing from our minds? What I think Christ would want us to do, and what I know He would want us to do, because this is what He taught us to do, is to build a prayer habit as part of our discipleship before we encounter the difficult moments in life. And so let me talk to you about building a prayer habit. First of all, building a prayer habit may involve finding a habitual place for private prayer. Finding a habitual place for private prayer. There is no sacred ground on earth that's any different from any other place. As a Christian, you carry the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. You can pray anywhere there is. But if you're going to build prayer as a habit in your life, one of the things that might be helpful to you is to have a particular place where you go to pray. Jesus said in other contexts, when you pray, enter into your closet. All right, go and be alone. Be private in your prayers. And here in our passage, in verse 39, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him on reaching the place. The wording here is that the Garden of Gethsemane was not a new place for Jesus to go and pray. This was a habit that he established. It was a place that he found perhaps earlier this week, perhaps long ago when he traveled to Jerusalem. It's a place where he could get away from the crowds and go before the Father and pray. And maybe one of the lessons to take away from this for yourself is to find a place of prayer for yourself. In John chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, we see this same incident, the same time in Christ's life, recounted to us from the Apostle John, where he says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So this was praying in the upper room. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. How did Judas know where to find Jesus, where Jesus would be alone and he could be taken and arrested. Remember, that's been a theme that we've been building up to that Luke's been talking to us about. The answer is because Jesus had a habit of doing this. Jesus could be found in Gethsemane praying because this was his habit and this was where he went. And if you're going to become a person who learns to pray in the struggles of your life, maybe it will be helpful to you to model the example of Jesus and find a place habitually for yourself for private prayer. Another way to build a habit is not only to have a habitual place for prayer, but have a habitual time for private prayer. Have a habitual time for private prayer. We know from Daniel, one of the great Old Testament saints, that he had a prayer habit, not only a place, but a time when he met with God in prayer. So much so that those who wanted to conspire to get him arrested knew that they could catch him on this because he was so consistent. And Jesus himself shows not only the marks of someone who had a prayer habit in terms of his place, but also in terms of his time. Again, the language that's used here about Christ going to the Mount of Olives and going to the Garden of Gethsemane shows that this is what he did in the evening. After the meals that he would have with his disciples, he would go off and pray. But the Bible tells us that this was a habit of Christ's life long before this weekend or this week. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we are told, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And if you and I are going to use prayer as the resource that God has given to us in our spiritual life, if prayer is going to give us the grace of God in our struggles in daily life, a big component of that is going to be learning to turn to prayer as a habit in our life. So find yourself a place and find yourself a time. Let me, let me just add one more thing about the habit of prayer that goes into this. And again, none of this is the point of the passage, but it is helpful to learn from the passage. And that is this. In terms of having a prayer habit, change your posture in prayer if you need to. Go to verse 46 again. Jesus says, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up. And I don't think that get up is just like wake up. 
I think he's saying physically, get up off your knees. If you can't be on your knees or on your face before God and pray with concentration without falling asleep, then stand up and pray. That's what he's telling them. And you and I may have certain habits of prayer. We may choose to kneel to pray in a particular place. We may choose to sit. We may choose to stand. All of these are acceptable postures for prayer throughout the Bible. The Bible doesn't say there's any one way to pray in terms of the way your physical body needs to be positioned. But the point of the instruction of Jesus here, and one thing we can take away from it is, if your usual prayer posture isn't working, change, your, change how you're standing, change how you're sitting, change how you're before the Lord. It's the, the act of prayer is far more important than whether you are on your knees before the Lord. So these are some ways to help build a prayer habit as part of your walk with Christ. Another thing we can learn from the way Jesus prayed and how he counseled and practiced prayer is to be honest about what you want from God in prayer. To be honest about what you want from God in prayer. Would you dare ever ask God to change his will for your life? I think we've all probably done that to some degree but have we done it as boldly and as openly as Christ did in this moment? Christ knew without a shadow of a doubt what the will of God for his life was. He was part of the plan that made this the will of God. And yet in this moment, he had no fear whatsoever about asking God the Father to change his will if he willed to do so. In other words, he was honest about what he really wanted from God, even if that desire that, he, that, that rose from his uh, physical nature, even if it's something that he knew ultimately was outside of the will of God, he was willing to ask for it from God. And this is what the Scripture tells us to do. Sometimes I think we are far too meek in our praying. We've read and we understand what it means to reverence God and to pray according to His will, and all of that is important. Jesus prayed according to God's will too, as we'll see. But sometimes we're very timid about what we want from God, to the point we don't actually ask God for anything. We just sort of hint at it. We suggest it, sort of like we do in our own personal life when we're too ashamed or too um, you know, nervous to actually ask for something from someone, and so we sort of hint about it. Sometimes even in our praying, we may do that. And yet the Bible says, and Jesus modeled the kind of direct request that all of us should uh, exhibit in our own lives. Jesus said this earlier in his ministry in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He doesn't say go up to the door and hint that you'd like to get in. He says, bang on that door. Tell God what it is you want. Verse 8, for everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, not to those who want them, not to those who hint at them, but to those who ask. There is an honesty in our praying that Jesus modeled for us. And as you build a prayer habit in, in your Christian life, as you learn to deal with the struggles of your life, not with anxious uh, worrying about things or complaining to other people, but coming to God in prayer, do it in a way that is honest about what you want from God. But in the midst of all this as well, be submissive to whatever God has willed for you in prayer. See, Jesus, his praying models both of this, an extreme honesty about what he wanted from God, and yet a reverent submission to what God wanted him to do. Jesus wanted to avoid the cup of God's wrath at all costs, if possible. And yet in his praying, in everything he said, in verse 42, he said, Yet not my will, but yours be done. In the end, what he wanted to, from God was submitted to what God wanted. Ultimately, what he wanted was for God to get what he wanted. And this is the kind of submission 
that you and I should also model in our prayers. Jesus asked for deliverance from death. And what did he get? He got an angel. It could be worse, but it was definitely not the very thing that he was asking for. When he asked God for deliverance from the wrath of God, God gave him the grace to endure the wrath of God. God gave him the power to do what needed to be done in the will of God. It's not what he wanted in the most personal sense, but it is what he wanted in the ultimate sense. He wanted God's will to be done. He wanted God to be glorified. And the Bible tells us in another passage that I'll show you in just a second, that it was actually Christ's reverent submission to the will of God that caused God to hear and to answer his prayer. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, the Bible says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. What is this describing, if not this incident in the life of Jesus? And then the Bible says this, and it's surprising to read, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. How was he heard? God denied the request that Jesus asked for, which was to avoid death and to avoid the cup of God's wrath. But God's answer was not a hard no to the will of God, to the will of Jesus. It was what he needed to be submissive to the will of Christ. And so verse 8 says, Son though he he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. After all the ordeal was over, the cross was done His body was resurrected and glorified. Jesus, I'm sure, was glad that he endured the cross. How do I know that? Because that's what Hebrews 12 says. It says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. In the moment, Jesus wanted to avoid the anguish of the cross, but ultimately he wanted to fulfill the will of God with his life. And because he reverently submitted his request to God, honest though it was, but reverently submitted to God, the Bible said God heard his request. God gave him not what he wanted, but what he needed. And this is what God's promise to us is. It's not to answer every prayer exactly the way that we want. But rather it's to conform our our thoughts and our desires, our thinking and our willing to the will of God so that What we want and what God wants is aligned. And so this is how Christ dealt with the struggles of his life, and this is his teaching to us. How do you deal with the struggles of life, no matter how big or small they are? The Bible's answer is very simple. Come to God in prayer in all the struggles of your life. Do you have a prayer habit in your life? Have you started to build the discipline of prayer so that it actually becomes part of who you are when you do face the temptations and struggles in life. That's what Jesus modeled in his life, and that's what he taught. If we're followers of his, if we've received the forgiveness of our sins by his grace because we've come to know him as our Lord and Savior, then this is God's will for us in all the struggles of our life. Come to God in prayer in all the struggles of your life.